0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxis. Well, it's great to have you. If you're a newbie, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the pastors here at Crosswinds. And I'm going to jump right into our study today because, just like you, I am really excited for Chile. And so the sooner we get to chili, the better, uh, except the deal is we really need to feed our spirits through Jesus Christ before we feed our mouths with chili. So we're going to do that this morning. Um, we are this morning in First Timothy chapter 2, and if you've been around Crossman's for a while, I've always told you that we keep our finger in the text, and the text is what tells us the truth. The other thing that I have told you many times is that when you read a Bible text, you always have to read it in context. That means you have to look at what comes before and what comes after. So you read it and understand it in the flow of thought of the passage. And as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 2, it is very important for us to understand this passage in light of what comes before it and what comes after it. Otherwise, you could quickly misinterpret this and make a complete mess of it. So let me just lead into what we're talking about. We know that the book of 1 Timothy is a letter written to a young man named Timothy by the Apostle Paul. Timothy had interned, we saw, under the Apostle Paul, traveled with him for 14 years. So he was sort of like a photocopy of Paul and his theology and truth about Jesus Christ. Now Timothy is uh, pastoring this church of Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, by the way, is a huge church. It's a mega church of thousands of people. But this church has some problems. Timothy has his hands full There are some of the elders in the church who are straying away from Jesus. I affectionately called them the elders gone wild group. And what they are doing is they're saying, you know, we've been talking about Jesus for a while now. We need something new. We need something trendy. We need something flashy. Jesus is old school. Let's move on to bigger and better things. And Paul, right at the beginning of this letter, comes out of the box and he says, Do not take your eyes off Jesus. No matter what you do, do not walk away from Jesus. That was the first message. And then last week as we finished up the first chapter, he continued along that same line of thought. He says, you don't take your eyes off Jesus. Let me tell you why. Because only Jesus Christ can change a life. He said, look at my life. I went from the, one, of the worst, one of the worst persecutors of the church to being an apostle of the church. My life changed because I met Jesus. Jesus changed me and He can change you too. Now we saw that some of the, uh, these elders gone wild group in Ephesus, they were trying to turn the church into a little book club sort of discussing the latest religious and theological ideas that had nothing to do with Jesus, because Ephesus was into a language, was into a lot of culture and learning. And in essence, Paul says this, you know, nobody ever read The Shack and became a Christian. Nobody ever read Heaven is for Real by Todd Burpo and developed a mature Christian life. The only way someone's life changes and they mature and become Christ-like as they follow Jesus Christ. So our lives are all about Jesus in the church, and we never take our eyes off of Him. That was in a, the message of the first chapter in a nutshell. And today, as we move on to chapter 2, he sort of starts to change subject a little, a little bit. He's going to talk about worship in the church and our lifestyle as Christians— What should it be like? And there's two things we're going to look at this morning. In the first seven verses, um, Paul tells us um, how we honor Christ with our life. And we honor Christ by being a place of prayer and by being a people of prayer. The incredible priority of prayer in the Christian walk and the Christian life. And then, when we get to the end of our study, we'll look at the last verses, verses 8 through 10, and he'll talk about how we can dishonor Jesus Christ. And he says, we can dishonor Jesus Christ with our lifestyle and the way we live. So we're going to dive into the text here, beginning in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and we're going to look at the incredible importance and priority of prayer in our lives as as Christians and in our lives as the church. So let's jump in. We pray all kinds of prayers, is the first point here. In verse one, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, that prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all Christians, for all people. He says, as Christians and as the church, I urge you of first importance. Notice it's not I suggest. It's not I encourage, it's not I hope, it is I urge you, pretty strong here, that you would be praying all kinds of prayers. Now, um, look what he says here. He gives us examples of those kinds of prayers, and I'm just going to explain those to you a little bit. He says that you would be praying supplications. Supplications are requests, that's all it means. That you would be praying for your needs, and you'd be praying for the needs of other people. urge you to do that. And then he says, you'd be praying prayers. Now, this term in the Greek for prayers is a very general term. It can mean um, usually prayers of worship or prayers of reverence, but it's, it's sort of an all-encompassing term, that you'd be praying. He also says, I urge you that you'd be offering prayers of intercession. That's when somebody goes into the hospital. What do we do? We get on the prayer chain, right? And we all gather together and we intercede in prayer for them. Incidentally, you want to be on the prayer chain, get on the city, which is our church social networking system, and join the prayer chain group, and you'll get all those prayers so you can help us intercede. Thirdly, he says this, you should be offering prayers of thanksgiving, not just requesting God to answer your prayers, but celebrating to God when He has answered those prayers. Now, you probably felt, as I started to explain these, that the Edges between these types of prayers are not hard and fast. And actually, um, grammatically, they're not. They can overlap a little bit. Paul's point is not that we should be praying four different specific types of prayers. Paul's point is that we should be praying all kinds of prayers whatever situation arises as christians and as the church we should be going to god in prayer over it it doesn't matter if a person has a broken arm or a broken heart we pray now let's look at what he continues on here we should be praying all kinds of prayers but we should be praying for all we should pray for all kinds of people he says we pray, and he says, um, that be, these prayers would be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. That we should be praying all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. Now, Typically, let's be honest, here at the church, what we typically do is pray for the needs in the prayer requests of the body, our own prayer needs. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the needs of the body. But as we saw a little bit earlier in the historical background of the church of Ephesus, you have this elders gone wild group who is drifting away from Jesus Christ. And we also learned in chapter 1 that they were drifting into a return to the ways and practices of Judaism. That if you, you want to be prayed for by us, you have to act like a Jew would act and follow the Old Testament laws. And so what you have Is a bunch of these people who are now just developing into an inner circle, smaller, close-knit group. And Paul is saying to Timothy, that's not the church. The church is a place that plays all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, not just for ourselves. The church is a place that has an outward focus. Into our community, into our world, not just a place with an inward focus where all we care about and pray about is us. In fact, he tries to illustrate the nature of this outward focus and how far reaching our outward focus is by saying here that we should be praying as far away as kings and for those who are in positions of authority so that we would live peaceful and quiet lives. Now, um, what often happens here is sometimes we get to misunderstand this a little bit. What does he mean when he says we should be praying for all people? Let me back up a little bit. Does he literally mean that we should be praying for all people out there? And by that I mean, does he mean we should all grab phone books and start in the A's? You know, that's our prayer meeting. We're starting in the A's this week in church, then we're going to pray through all the B's. Is that what he wants us to do, literally pray for all the people out there? I would submit to you that that's not what he's saying. He is telling us to pray for all kinds of people. Not literally all people. And the reason I say he's telling us to pray for all kinds of people is he gives us an example, which I just started to talk about a moment ago, by praying for those who are far away from us as kings and those who are in authority. Now, um, some of you will say, well, this is a good idea. You're right. We should be praying for those who are in authority around us. Look at our president. Boy, we should be praying for him, I'll tell you. I'm going to pray that a meteor would hit him. Others are like, "Oh, you know, I'm going to pray that he should get impeached. Could you believe this? He wants to build a wall between the U.S. and Mexico? How inhospitable. And now he wants to do this vetting of people coming in from other countries. Boy, we should really pray for him. And we like to pray prayers of saying, I, I hope our leaders get kicked out of office. But is that the kind of prayers that we are told to pray as Christians? No. It says that pray that we would live peaceful and quiet lives. Pray that they would be successful in their leadership. Pray that they would make good decisions and wise decisions for the country that they are over. And some of you say, well, the reason that Paul is saying that is because they had much better leaders than we do. You know, their swamp didn't need to be as drained as ours does. That's why you should pray for them, but we should have ours impeached. Really? Do you understand the historical context of what it was like when this letter was written? Do you know who was in charge of the city of Ephesus? Who was in charge of Rome? at the time that Paul says that we should be praying for him was a man named Nero. Do you know anything about Nero, the ruler of Rome? Not a nice guy. In fact, there's a lot of things he liked to do to our forefathers as believers. He loved to take Christians and throw them into the public arena and then throw wild animals out that would eat them alive and dismember them. That's how he treated Christians. The other thing he would do with Christians, he'd take them and have them quartered. Which means you'd take four horses and tie ropes to people's hands and their feet. Tie the ropes to the horses, whip them and send them in four different directions. And a person's arms and legs would be pulled off. Nothing but a head and a torso. That's the way he treated Christians. What does Paul say, we pray for him. We pray that he would rule rightly, rightly, and make good choices and wise choices. You know what else Nero did to our forefathers? He took them and he rolled them in pitch and tar. Then he wrapped them with cloth for a wick, and he stuck them on poles. And while they were still alive, he lit them on fire so they would die a slow and arduous, painful death. And ultimately, they would serve as human torches to light his parties by night. Paul says, we pray for him, even if we don't always agree with him. You know what else Nero did? Murder. of Some of the people that were closest to him. His mother was super influential in bringing him to power. He murdered her. His wife, Octavia, Decided he didn't like her. He murdered her. Another one of his wives, Pompeia, she was pregnant, carrying his child. Decided he didn't like her one day. Pushed her on the ground and then kicked her and the child that was within her to death, killing both of them. And you know what Paul says? He's our ruler. We pray for him. We pray that he would rule wisely. We pray that he would rule rightly. rightly. Here's my point to you. You may or you may not like Donald Trump, but I have to tell you something. We are commanded by God not to be the primary protesters against him, but to be the primary prayer warriors for him. We are to pray that he would rule wisely, that he would rule justly, and if you think he's really bad, you ain't seen nothing until you see what Paul says when it comes to praying for Nero. And that's a word to do. In fact, look what the scriptures say. Scriptures say this: Romans thirteen verse one. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The reason that Donald Trump is in the White House is not because there's a problem with our political system where the electoral vote and the popular vote can be different, and he was unfairly put there. The reason he is in the White House is because God put him there right now. And God says because he put him there that we are to submit to his leadership and we are to pray for his leadership that he would rule wisely and rightly, that there would be peace for us. So what Paul is saying to Timothy here, the church is to be a place of prayer. It's to be a people of prayer. We pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people, even people who are far removed from us. Even people who are leaders and who do not necessarily even agree with us, people who would persecute us, we still pray for them. Now, there's an amazing point of application that is right on the surface of this. Since we are to be a people so dominated by prayer, it should dominate all aspects of our life. And by that I mean... Like you, when I'm in public, it's often hard to bring up Jesus Christ and sort of insert Him into a conversation where it doesn't feel awkward, weird, forced. Anybody feel that way? Yeah. Well, here's what you do. When you're in a conversation with people, like I was in a conversation with a guy all of a sudden at the grocery store yesterday, and he tells me that his wife left him on Thursday. And it just sort of came up naturally. Can I pray for you? He hung his head and said, Yes. So I prayed for him. And I prayed in the name of Jesus Christ. And I was able to share Christ's name and talk about the great power, not necessarily overtly, but just in a subtle way, as I prayed for God's mercy and compassion on him. And I want you to know something. When someone's in a crisis and you offer to pray for them, do they say no? How dare you? No. No. They say, yes, would you? See, prayer is one of the best ways to share Jesus in our world. Just simply offering to pray with people and for people, especially as they're growing through a crisis. And we can do that. Here's the fill in the blank. One of the best ways to witness is offering to pray with people in a crisis. Now, we've talked about how we pray all kinds of prayers, We talked about how we pray for all kinds of people, not necessarily all people on the planet, but all kinds of people, even rulers who would disagree with us. Now it continues. We pray for people that are far from God. And why do we pray for people who are far from God? Because God desires all kinds of people to be saved. Here's the text. It says, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, this is interesting here. I need you to put your theological thinking caps on and remember the background of what's going on here. You have some elders in this church who are saying, we're just going to pray for and work for our own little inner group. We're not going to pray for our community. We're not going to pray for the needs of people in our community. All we care about is ourselves. But Paul says we pray for all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people because God has a big heart and God has a big house. And Here is the theological knot that we find ourselves on. It says in this text that God desires all people to be saved. Well, if God desires all people to be saved, why are not all people saved? Is God's will frustrated? Can He not achieve His purpose? And maybe even more perplexing is this. 1 Timothy is not Paul's only letter to the church in Ephesus. Earlier in his ministry, he wrote another letter to the church of Ephesus called the letter to the Ephesians. And in the very beginning of the letter to the Ephesians, he specifically says that not every single person will be saved. And in fact, it was not even God's plan that every single human being on the planet would be saved. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So all of a sudden in 1 Timothy chapter 2, God desires all people to be saved. But in Ephesians chapter 1, same church, earlier letter, only those whom He has predestined in eternity past will be saved. How do we put these together? The key thing to understand in 1 Timothy chapter 2 is the use of the word all. Earlier we saw that we are to pray for all people, doesn't mean we are to pray for a dictionary or a phone book. It meant we are to pray for all kinds of people, even rulers who are different from us. And in this context, the word all means the exact same thing. God desires that all kinds of people are saved, not just a little certain inner group. Like these elders gone wild want it to be, these Jewish types of people. Now to illustrate this, that God's plan has always been that all kinds of people would be saved from all kinds of backgrounds, but not necessarily that every single person on the planet will be saved. Let me simply turn you to Revelation's chapter five, which talks about what it is like. When Jesus Christ is on his throne and what is surrounding him, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. It says that Jesus has ransomed all kinds of people, but not all people on the earth. Paul's point is we have a very big God with a very big heart who plans to have a very big house. And everyone in the church should not look identical because He wants us to reach all kinds of people with the good news, especially those who are different from us. Now, here's another direct point of application. The church of Ephesus had become extremely ingrown, just praying for themselves, just caring about each other. They did not care about their community They did not pray for their community and the needs in the community around them. At Crossman's, have we done the same thing? Have we become a church who focuses almost exclusively just on us? All we pray about are the needs of our church family Now, not that that's wrong. Those are important things to pray for. But do we have a big heart, like we have a big God? Do we pray for the needs in our community, the needs of our nation? Do we pray for the salvation of people in our community? Do we pray that God would uh, bring us to people who are very different from us so we can tell them about Jesus? I will admit, and I want to take some fault on this, that as your pastor, I've always focused on trying to keep our finger in the text. That's the right thing to do. But I haven't necessarily encouraged you to be a praying people as much as I should. I've always focused on how to run the church well in honoring to Jesus, but I haven't necessarily focused on trying to have us have our eyes out into our community and to our world. that's something I've got to work on and change. The text rebukes us. That's what the text does. It does that for me. It does that for you. That's what we need to be. So, the idea is that God wants all kinds of people saved. And then He continues. He says this, by the way, there is only one way to be saved. Only one way. And all of a sudden, He jumps into this. There is one God and there is one meteor between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, and I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, if you are under 30 years old, you need to listen very closely right about now. Because you live in a postmodern culture. And what Paul is addressing is postmodernism that was actually happening in the city of Ephesus. You need to understand the historical background. We learned this the first week that Ephesus is a port city, and ships from all around the world docked at Ephesus to bring their cargo and bring it into Asia. And people as far away as the Orient would come through Asia and go through the port city of Ephesus to leave and to ship. So what we find is that in the city of Ephesus, it's not just the temple of Artemis that dominates the landscape and the culture. But you find, archaeologists tell us, in the city of Ephesus, temples to gods from around the world Gods that are worshipped in Egypt, temples to them are found in the city of Ephesus. Gods that are worshipped as far away as China are found in the city of Ephesus because everybody has their way to God available to them in this one commercial port city where people from around the world are traversing through. That's postmodernism. You know, everybody worships God just a little different way. Today we say you worship God, you could be a, a Buddhist, you could be a Hindu, you could be a Muslim, or you could just follow Oprah, or you could follow Jesus. It's all relatively the same. That's postmodernism. That's what they were going through. But Paul is adamant. There is only one God, and there's only one Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It's very clear to him. Now, the question then becomes, since we're to pray with all people, because there's only one God, so we can introduce them to Jesus, what are all these other people worshiping? There must be some kind of spiritual entity or power, or none of this would have persisted. And the Scriptures answer that question. It says this in 1 Corinthians 10.20, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Is there a spiritual power in reality behind Hinduism and Buddhism? Yes. It is a demonic power. Scriptures tell us that. Is there a spiritual power behind Islam? Yes, Allah is a very powerful, dark, and wicked demon. Not my opinion. Just put your finger in the text. It's right there. Now, this is very important that we understand that there's only one way to God. I'm going to skip a little bit of stuff here. Oh, I'll give it to you anyway. Here's the fun part. We're caught on the horns of a dilemma again because it says, once again, that Jesus died to give himself as a ransom for all. Was Jesus' death on the cross effective payment for every single human being out there? Are all saved by what Jesus has done by dying on the cross? And if he is paid for everyone's sin, why aren't they all saved then? The issue has to do with the word all. In this context, earlier we saw that all means all kinds of people. We also saw that all means God desires all kinds of people to be saved. And here we find that Jesus died as a ransom to pay for the sins of all kinds of people, not as a ransom for all people. Now, by the way, is Jesus' death sufficient to pay for all sin? Most definitely. But it is effectively paying for everyone's sin? Not. That's what the scripture says. In fact, what Paul is doing is he's actually quoting a passage from Mark in this one. Look what it says Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to do serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. (coughs) Now, here's the point. We as Christians, we pray all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. We tell them about Jesus Christ. We plant the seed, but it's not our responsibility to make that seed grow. God is the one who germinates that seed in people's hearts. So it takes the responsibility off you. We don't have to make anyone a Christian. We can't. All we can do is tell them about Jesus and invite them to follow Him. And God is the one who makes that seed grow. Look what it says in the Scriptures about how the gospel was spread in the book of Acts. And when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, appointed in eternity past to eternal life, then the Spirit quickened the message of the gospel, and they trusted in Jesus Christ and moved on. All right. The first part, we had some tough theology, like how to use the word all in all kinds of people. Now let's have some fun. I told the first service, I didn't think I'd get to this part, but I got to it, and I'm going to do it for you. Okay, we saw how we honor Jesus. We honor Jesus by being people of prayer for all kinds of people. But here's how we can dishonor Jesus. We can dishonor Jesus through our lifestyle. And he gives us an example of how men can dishonor Jesus through their lifestyle and how women can dishonor Jesus through their lifestyle. Here's how men can do it. Men can steal honor from Jesus by praying with dirty hands or an angry heart. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, men typically we're the strong, silent type. We like to fix things. We don't like to talk about things. And this is what he says. Men, your responsibility, we've just talked about the importance and priority of prayer, is your responsibility is to take the initiative and pray. When you're walking down that hall and you're talking to somebody and you hear about a crisis that's going on in their life, men, it is your responsibility to take the initiative, put your arm around them and say, can I pray for you? Some of you are like, that's uncomfortable. Get over it. You're at work and you hear somebody going through a crisis with their teenager, your responsibility is to say, can I pray for you? They're not going to say no. And he says, as you pray, make sure you're lifting up holy hands. Now, by the way, this doesn't mean that we only get to pray like this, like we're at a stick-up for a bank shootout, you know? By the way, this is one of the ways that was a position of prayer for the Jews. They lifted up their hands when they prayed. Incidentally, when we worship sing worship songs, what do you guys just naturally do? A bunch of you? Right? It's normal, okay? But what's going on here is not the position of the hands that is essential, but the purity of the hands is what's essential. Make sure you are lifting up holy hands in prayer. Men, these are our tools, right? We work. All week long. What are these hands doing? For some of you, these hands are on a trackpad almost all day long. What are they clicking on? For some of you, these hands are across the touchscreen. What are they looking at? For others of you, these hands are, are are writing bills or writing checks. What kind of things are they writing in the business that you do? Holy things? For others of you men, these hands are touching a woman, which is good, as long as she's your wife. And if she's not, (laughs) they're not holy hands. When you take the initiative to be men of prayer, make sure you have holy hands. Then he moves from your hands on the outside to your heart on the inside, that you may not be also men who are known for their anger and their quarreling. Guys, let me just talk to you about this real directly. Um, We have testosterone, don't we? I've got an entire room of low testosterone men. Not good. Men, do we have testosterone? Yes, right, yeah. Can that make you sometimes a little more aggressive? Can that make you sometimes a little bit more prone to anger? And when you get under a lot of stress, can you get a little irritated? You have to, like, you know, stamp it down a little bit? Yes. We can be prone to anger. And he says, no. got to be careful, guys. Because in your anger, it can totally ruin your witness. Be men of prayer. But watch what you're doing with your hands. Watch what you're doing with your heart. I mean, if you're at work and somebody uh, needs prayer and you pray for them, and then as soon as you're done praying, you start griping about what a jerk your boss is, and then you choose not to pay the waitress a tip, you've totally ruined your witness. Right? It's exactly what he's saying. In fact, he pulls it out of this section here. It's really, he's just quoting Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. "'Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place?' He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Men, you want to have a really effective prayer life for people? Watch your hands and watch your heart. Now, this is the really fun part. He moves from talking about men and how we can dishonor Jesus Christ by what goes on in our work life and in our our private life to talking about women and how women can dishonor Jesus Christ. And it's this. Women can steal honor from Jesus by the way they dress. It says likewise also that women should not adorn themselves or should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good deeds. This means that women of the church should have adequate separation between their neckline and their hemline. I worked all week on that line. Guys, come on. (laughs) I mean, I thought that was good. You know, no low-cut stuff, you know? Here's the point. Let me give you the historical background so you can understand this. In this culture, the traditional place of women was at the home. Traditionally, women had long hair, which when they were home, they displayed their long hair because long hair was akin to part, being part of a woman's beauty, which she was to display for her husband at home. And then when she went out in public, she covered her hair so no one else would see her beauty. And she typically wore something that looked a little bit like a bedsheet to cover up her lines so she could do a double for being Casper the Friendly Ghost. And the idea then is she saved her beauty for what's at home. But in the sophisticated cultural cities of the day at this time, like Rome, or Ephesus, who was the fourth largest city in the empire, a big commercial powerhouse. You have women going through what is a small women's liberation movement. Women are no longer satisfied to sit at home by themselves. They're like, you know what? I want to go out in public because there's a lot of things going on in our city and I'd like to see it. And women are saying, you know, I really don't want to cover my hair. I'd like to have my hair out in public. And uh, let me tell you, remember, Ephesus is a city of sailors. Do you think the men like this? Yep, is right. Do you think the women like the newfound attention? Yep. Yeah, they're really liking the attention they're getting. And so what is going on at this time is not only are women letting their hair out, their long hair flow freely, but they're really getting into styling their hair. See, ladies, nothing is new under the sun. You style your hair now, and they styled their hair then. Except the difference is you have electricity and a curling iron. They didn't. We're talking hot rocks. In fact, the rich women would sometimes take for maids to get their hair done, it would take a lot of time in the day. But of course, if you're going to show your hair and you're going to curl your hair, you want to do it right. Historically, what they were even doing was blade, braiding gold, strands of gold into their hair. They're braiding jewelry and pearls into their hair with a sophisticated, incredibly gorgeous hairstyle, which the men loved and the women liked the attention. Not only that, but historically, we have at this time the invention of uh, dresses. Now, of course, they've had clothing before, but it's this long sort of hide-all-the-curves clothing. But dresses at this time are not hide-all-the-curves. They are, you know, they are form-fitting. We, this is pre-spandex, okay? pre wrap. So it takes a lot of time and detail for seamstresses to make these kind of dresses. But what they look like is the same kind of dresses you would see at the Oscars on the red carpet. Fancy, deeply cut, showing a little leg, you know what I mean? They're looking good. They're nice hairstyles. And they're walking around town. And then people are like, wow, this is really good. And you know, ladies, you know how this is. When the, when the fashion trends start this way, everybody is under pressure to act this way and to dress this way. You need to understand these dresses, by the way, are expensive too. Historically, we know that a dress like this, because they were handmade, would have to cost around the average of 7,000 hours of labor, the the, the salary of a 7,000 hours of a day laborer. That means that if you worked at Jimmy John's for three and a half years, you would finally save enough money to buy one dress. But of course, the ladies are going, trust me, it's worth every bit of it because you ought to see the way the men look at me. And so what happens is you have these ladies who are under a lot of cultural pressure, wearing tightly cut dresses, fancy hairstyles, and hey, when you're going to church, you want to dress your best, right? They walk into the church, and I got to tell you something. Do you think any of the men in the church are now thinking about Jesus? The men are thinking, how can I not lust right now? The women are saying, I could kill her. Because, ladies, you know. You know what's going on, right? Now, here's the point. By dressing this way, they're taking honor from Jesus Christ in his house. Because when you come to church, the focus should be on Jesus Christ, not on you, ladies. Now, this doesn't mean that all Christian ladies have to have a bedhead as a hairdo. It doesn't mean that you can't dress nicely, you can't dress appropriately. But when you're dressing seductively or in a way that is calling all the attention to yourself instead of Jesus Christ, you've crossed the line. You've gone too far. You're stealing honor from Jesus. It's meant to go to Him and not to go to you. So, how do we bring honor to Jesus? We become men and women of prayer. All kinds of prayer for all kinds of people. Not just people that are like us, but people in our community and the needs of our community. Even people that are way beyond us and far from us like our rulers and leaders. Because there's only one way to know God and that's through Jesus Christ. And by praying for people like that, we introduce them to Him. But we can also take honor from Jesus. Men, we take honor from Jesus when what we do with our hands during the week isn't holy and what we do with our hearts is angry. And women, (laughs) take honor from Jesus by the way you dress. When people end up looking at you instead of Jesus when you're in His house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to be men and women who give honor to Your Son, Jesus Christ, above all things. We don't want to take that honor away from Him. Father, I especially pray that You would forgive us as a church for maybe not focusing enough on prayer and not focusing enough on prayer for people who are lost in prayer for people who are beyond us, when that is clearly the message of this text, that we would be an outward-focused church, not an inward-focused church. Because we want to bring more honor to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.